Hi, this is Joe Montana. This is Dak Prescott. Hey, this is Jason Kelsey, and you're listening to Rob Motti. Rob Motti. Rob Motti. I am Rob Motti, and welcome to the AP Pro Football Podcast. Our guest this week is former Colts and Chargers running back Donald Brown. He was the first player from the University of Connecticut ever selected in the first round of the NFL draft. Many UConn players were selected in the first round of the NBA draft. Stay tuned for that conversation. It's a really good one. Training camp is less than two weeks away. COVID-19 vaccines are kind of the biggest topic going on right now in summertime. So seven teams have reached 85% threshold for player vaccinations. 70% of players across the league have been vaccinated at least once. Teams above that threshold are going to have fewer restrictions when camp opens. So the vaccine is not mandatory, but considering how many restrictions that unvaccinated players are going to face, the league and the union, which agreed to the protocol, are making it extremely difficult on players who don't want to take the shot. Donald Brown played seven seasons in the NFL with the Indianapolis Colts and San Diego Chargers from 2009 through 2015. He now works with International Justice Mission as Director of Team Freedom Partnerships, Pro Athletes Ending Slavery at IJM. Here's my conversation with Donald Brown. Donald, you were the first UConn player ever selected in the first round of the NFL draft. But before we get to that point, at what point in your life as a kid did you have that dream to get to the NFL? Yeah, Rob, for me personally, it started uh, when I was in high school. I really didn't have aspirations to make it to the pros. I had aspirations to go and play Division One football. Um, and so from there, once I got to the University of Connecticut, and then I started to see some of my teammates uh, getting uh, chances in the NFL, I was thinking, hey, maybe if I work hard enough, uh, I might ex- I have an opportunity as well. So for me, it was kind of in stages. I didn't always have a long-term goal of making it to the NFL. Uh, I grew up a Giants fan, so football is uh, definitely something uh, revered in our household growing up. Um, but for me personally, it was kind of net one step at a time, making it to Division One, and then eventually to the pros. So to be the first guy, because we know UConn is a basketball school, obviously, to be the first football player selected in the first round, how special was that? It, it was. It, uh, it was quite an honor, um, you know, but really – it goes to the hard work of those that came before me, the Dan Orlovskis, the Alfred Finchers, uh, guys who kind of were there when UConn made the shift from one double A to one A, uh, and then Randy Etzel just building a program. Um, so for me, I'm just really grateful for the guys before me uh, and also, also the support staff and coaches that I had that I was there. But uh, it, yes, it was quite the honor. Well, there were that year. So you go in the first round at 27 at Indy. I believe three other UConn players went in the second round, too. So yes. that was a that was a good class. We we had a really strong draft class that year. We had a great team. I mean, we were doing really well. Uh, and then the year after we left, uh, UConn ended up making it to the Fiesta Bowl. Um, so it was a really strong time for the program. Uh, and I'm really hopeful that uh, the program will get back to that uh, level of play uh, here soon. There's only been one other guy from UConn in the first round. Do you know who he is? Yes, Mr. Jones. Yes. And I believe, was he pick 27 as well, I believe? Also yeah. 27, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to meet him, but I've heard uh, great things about him, and he's obviously had a great career in the league. So, so I'm really happy for him, uh, and I'm always rooting for the UConn guys in the league. Now, you joined a team that year that had a lot of success already coming to prior to you 
joining Indianapolis. They had an established running back in Joseph Adai, who was also a first-round pick three years earlier. So when you're going into that, are you are you viewing that as welcoming the competition, or what are these guys doing? Why are they bringing me? And they already have a guy at running back. What was your mindset going into that rookie season? You know, go, going in, my mindset was, how can I help the team? How can I help the team in any way, shape, or form? Whether that was first down, second down, third down, or special teams, that that was my mindset. Uh, there was a lot of great leadership in that locker room. Obviously, starting with Peyton Manning, Dwight Freeney, Gary Brackett, Reggie Wayne. Dallas Clark. I mean, the list goes on on Jeff Saturday. The list really goes on. And the coaching staff was just phenomenal. Coach Caldwell uh, in that first year, I mean, you wouldn't have known that he was a first year head coach. Um, so just the, the leadership going in uh, was a great culture and environment. So I was really grateful for that. Um, so my mindset going in, Rob, was really just how can I help this team and how, how can I help this team win? You guys end up going to the Super Bowl that season. You play New Orleans. What is that experience like for you? What stands out in your mind when, when you think back about playing in a Super Bowl, the week leading up to it, all of the, the chaos, really, and, and then the game itself? Yes. I, you know, it's funny looking back. And when I was in it, you know, because at, at the time we were rolling that season, we were 14-0 heading into the last two games. And so I'm thinking, man, this is really easy to win in the National Football League, <laughs> you know, so because I was so naive as a rookie and I had no idea. Now looking back, you know, that's an op- absolutely – an anomaly and uh, Phoenix itself winning 14 games in a row and then making it to the Super Bowl, you know? So, um, so I, I'd say from that standpoint, um, you know, it was just an opportunity where you're just seeing guys working hard week in and week out, sticking to the process uh, and taking care of business one week at a time, and then ultimately uh, making it to the Super Bowl. And yes, that, that was quite the event. Uh, and there was obviously a lot of, uh, excitement building up to it. Um, but, you know, but once the whistle blows, that opening kickoff happens, you know, it, it's just another game. Yes, there's a lot of excitement about it. And there's a lot of chips on the table. Um, but, you know, it, it was we're still playing football, you know, so don't make it bigger than it is. So you, you guys don't win that season, but the expectations and the, and the pressure in Indianapolis is that you're going to be a Super Bowl contender every season. What is that like? When, when you're not playing for a team that's just middle of the pack, that's hoping to contend, be 500, the goal is really Super Bowl or bust. Is that heightened expect- heightened pressure on you guys? I wouldn't say it's heightened pressure. There, the, there was a culture of success. There was an environment of success, hard work, dedication, sticking to the process. So, you know, we kind of always would look at it in phases, right? Winning your division winning your league and then making it to the to the Super Bowl. You know, because if, if you don't win your division, the chances of getting to the Super Bowl are even harder, right? So kind of not getting too ahead of ourselves, sticking to the process one week at a time. But, you know, again, I just give a lot of credit to the leadership in the locker room, uh, the way these gentlemen approach their uh, craft on a week, week in and week out basis. I mean, these are Hall of Famers. And just seeing the way that they work, their attention to detail, their commitment to the process, um, you know, you had no choice but to follow suit and help raise everybody else's uh, play and expectations and the way we approached uh, our job on a weekly basis. My first experience with Peyton Manning was early in his career. He came to Philly and dominated a Jim Johnson coach defense. And I just remember going into the locker room and he's standing there answering question after question 
And I, and I run around, speak to other players, may have even gone to the Eagles locker room, came back and there's Peyton still standing at his locker and, and just graciously answering questions for like 30, 35 minutes. And, and I was blown away as a young reporter at that time in 2001, 02, whenever it may have been. How would you describe playing with him? Uh, the kind of guy that he was. And, and, you know, we see him doing all these commercials and I, like he, he's got a sense of humor that you wouldn't expect out of a guy like who, who looks like Peyton Manning. Right. Yeah, no, he, he definitely has a, a sense of humor, um, you know, but he was just the consummate pro. He, he was a true professional in every aspect. His attention to detail was second to none, um, you know, and, and again, when you see somebody like that, who's had that much success, for a continued period and just the way that he approaches each day, each week, each season, um, you know, that there's a massive wake that, that somebody brings and, and you just follow suit. And, and so I was really, really grateful and fortunate um, to play with a lot of great quarterbacks, Peyton being one of them. Um, and so I, I'm just tremendously grateful for guys like that and just seeing the way that they approach each and every day, each and every week. And you see why they're truly Hall of Famers. You got to play with Philip Rivers also, and a little bit uh, briefly in training camp with Tom Brady. How would you describe their differences? Because they're all different personalities, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's really hard to pinpoint differences. I'd say things that stick out, they're just true competitors. I mean, these guys compete. It doesn't matter if it's golf football, in the weight room, in the film room, you know, they're just competitors. They compete at everything they do. And there's a level of excellence. Um, and then you could even see just the amount of detail they would uh, kind of put into things that honestly, from an outsider's perspective, you're like, does that really matter? Just like seeing like, Hey, how's my 40 yard time doing? How's my 20 yard time doing? These guys don't run those distances, but to see the effort that they would put into even the little things that wouldn't seem to matter just goes to show how much effort they are putting into the bigger things that really uh, play into what they do. But ultimately, at the end of the day, these guys are just ultimate competitors, true competitors, great teammates. Um, you know, they're, they're very selfless guys, just really understand, hey, it's bigger than just them. And it takes, you know, 11 on both sides of the ball in order to be successful. When you look back at your career, the last seven plus seasons in the NFL is quite an accomplishment. You got over 18, you got 18 rushing touchdowns, almost 3,000 yards. Like, what do you think is, what do you consider your, your biggest accomplishment? What are you most proud of playing in the league? You know, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, there's not an, uh, a statistic mm -hmm. that I would say I would hang my hat on. I'd say, uh, I was a consistent teammate. I was a reliable teammate. I was a dependable teammate. Um, and, and I think ultimately that's what um, I kind of hung my hat on. You know, I wanted to be a guy that uh, a player could count on me, a coach could count on me, uh, and, be a, and do a consistent job in that. Um, so I'd, I'd say that's kind of what I prided myself on and, and what I really um, wanted to make sure I was just to be a great teammate. Uh, on and off the field uh, to my team members. Donald, do you closely watch the NFL at all? How closely? Five, six years removed from the league. Some guys just can't can't go back, can't look at it. Some are really, you know, analysts and stay within the game. How do you uh, look at today's game? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, Rob, I, I don't I don't watch football. Um, I, when I kind of stopped, I was like, I, I just need a break. Uh, kind of in a lot of different areas of my life, mentally, physically. 
Um, you know, but now I, I have three children now, three boys. And, and so they have, uh, they have a passion for football. So our oldest being eight. And so they're always wanting to watch now. So I, I'll watch with them. I'm, I, but it, it is very hard for me because I don't watch it from kind of leisure point of view. I'm watching it from a schematic, what's going on, which way is the sl- center sliding. So I know the protection. Oh, that was the running back's responsibility. <laughs> so it's not the most relaxing for me, to be honest with you, but I do enjoy it. Uh, watching it with my boys. So uh, I'd say I, I started to watch it a little bit more recently, um, but that's only because of my children. Do they have any favorites? Any any particular guy or teams that they want? Yeah, uh, so our oldest is a, is a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Our middle is a Seattle Seahawks fan. And our youngest, he's only four, so he kind of roots for uh, whoever is on whoever has the coolest mascot uh, in that game. So um, so yeah, that that's kind of what our, our boys are the transition, Donald, to life after the NFL is different for every player. Some are more prepared for it than others. Some can easily uh, slide into a different career or something that they had been setting up for. How was it for you, and how did you eventually get involved with IJM, International Justice Mission? Yes. Um, you know, the transition transition's hard. Uh, I don't care who it is, um, you know, and it's might be a little easier for others, uh, but but it is it is hard, and there's a lot of things that I do miss. I miss the com- com- competition, I miss the camaraderie uh, in the locker room, things like that. Um, you know, and so for me, I knew I always wanted to still be around sports, but not in the X's and O's, more on the off the field portion of it. So when I transitioned out, I worked at San Diego State uh, University. Uh, for a year in their athletic department, working on student athlete development, and then worked for an organization uh, providing similar services, but more so for active and former professional athletes through their leagues and unions on continuing education, career development services. Uh, And then about a year and a half ago, I transitioned to International Justice Mission. And so I found out about IJM about eight years ago um, when I was still playing and uh, our, our son, um, was born. Our oldest son was born at the time. And so, International Justice Mission is a global anti-human trafficking organization that protects people in poverty from violence. And so, eight years ago, I had no clue modern-day slavery existed. And so, I'm sitting at a conference, and they're they're you know giving all these stats. Hey, 40 million people are trapped in slavery. I'm watching a video uh, of children in Ghana working trapped in a, a forced labor slavery on a fish on the largest man-made lake uh, in Ghana. And just seeing uh, investigative footage of these children and then looking at my own son, it's like, I, I need to do something. Um, so I- I'm really grateful for the uh, opportunity that I have to, to serve in this great mission. Uh, and in my role specifically, I have the opportunity of serving our partners from the professional sports community. Um, so a lot of uh, our athlete partners, we call it Team Freedom, use their platform to send, a re- send, a re- send rescue, raise awareness, uh, to protect people in poverty from violence. So that's that's what I get to do now. And Rob, you know, now kind of being removed from the fo- football game, I love what I do. You know, this to me, when, when we kind of sit and we have a large corporate uh, meetings each day and we get to hear kind of what's going on in the in our program offices around the field, hearing children are, are rescued uh, out of out of slavery. Families are rescued out of brick kiln factories. A child's being protected uh, that was being uh, sexually abused at home or being sexually abused at school, things like that. Hearing the the stories of rescue and restoration 
that's more powerful than any game, any playoff game, any Super Bowl that I ever played in. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity that I have because uh, I truly am really excited about uh, the work that I get to do now uh, and the impact that it has uh, on so many men, women, and children living in poverty around the world. I can see your passion, Donald, through the Zoom call about working for IJM. And my wife and I, man, are just as passionate about they, they do some tremendous work, great work fighting slavery and human trafficking. Those numbers that you mentioned, they're staggering. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I have sensed through conversations sometimes with athletes or, or just people who listen to my shows and they say, we had no idea that the numbers are so high, that these numbers are like that. Some people, like you said, didn't even, don't even know that slavery still, modern day slavery still exists. So how important is it for us and anyone who has a, a big platform or even a, a small platform in your own little community to spread awareness, to let people know that this is still happening. So many people are enslaved, they're entrapped in going through all of this and, and we can help them. And, and there are people like IJM who, who really go out there and do the hard work. Yeah. And Rob, you kind of just hit it on the head. It doesn't matter how big or small your platform is. We all have some level of influence. And if we don't, if people don't know there's an issue, it's not going to solve itself. Right. So the, the, the key is spreading the awareness of what's going on. 40 million people trapped in slavery. One in four is a child. It's a $150 billion industry. I mean, just massive and staggering numbers. And I, and I think with, with, with social media, there's been a lot of uh, conversations uh, around sex trafficking and human trafficking here stateside, which is great. And those conversations need to happen. But according to a lot of credible sources, less than one, about 1% of the 40 million is actually in North America alone, right? So we're going to the places where the 99% are. And so I think people just need to continue to have these conversations and they are hard. They, they really are. They're hard, they're uncomfortable. And some people don't even know what to do with them, but just show up have a conversation, tell somebody, if you want to get involved, there's plenty of opportunities. You know, you head to IJM.org just to find out more, get educated because there are a lot of, there's a lot of noise out there right now as well. Um, But, you know, my encouragement to you is just, just show up uh, and and lend your voice in this fight because it's going to take everybody uh, in order to see modern day slavery end in our lifetime. We're personally looking forward to our race to rescue and the campaign that IJM has going on and what we're going to do coming up in August, my wife and I and the kids. I know you did a Peloton ride with other athletes last year, and and that was awesome. What was that like? And I know when you get a bunch of athletes involved in something like this, it had to get competitive, right? Oh, without a doubt. So it, it was it was a lot of fun because a we're coming together for a cause and a mission that we're all passionate about and uh, we had about 12 guys across the NHL, MLB, NFL getting on their peloton for uh, a, a ride saying hey we're going to raise funds, we're going to raise awareness. Hey, join us on this ride and it was an all out competition. You know, usually there's I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Peloton, but there's usually a 5 to 10 minute warm up yeah. in the beginning of most classes. Guys were just hitting the the pedals full <laughs> throttle. There was no warm up at all. And it was just a, a lot of fun and guys really enjoyed it. Hey, the competitive aspect of it because again, this was last year, everybody's in isolation. COVID's happening. 
Um, you know, so just to be able to be in community on the bike, on a text message thread, it really felt like we were back in the locker room a bit. So guys had a great time doing it. And then I also embarked on a, another ride a couple days before that. Uh, I did a 104 mile bike ride on the Peloton. And this is where I, I shared with my friends and family about really what's going on, why I'm riding 104 miles. And just to see, again, the awareness uh, that was raised through that, the funds that were raised. And I said, hey, whatever money you give, I will match it. Uh, so we raised a significant amount of funds and people were just um, really glad to be informed of what's going on and being able to be a part of the fight and being part of the, the rescue, the restoration and the justice system transformation that's happening through our program offices on the field. Well, that's tremendous. I, I can imagine how competitive that had to get for you guys. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. some final thoughts. Peyton Manning said this week he can't fathom Aaron Rodgers not playing this season. Neither can I. He's a competitor. He's at the top of his game. He's the reigning NFL MVP and he's going to play football this year. That's the bottom line, period. That's it for this week. Thank you to Donald Brown and thank you for listening. Please be sure to download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, check out my colleague Ralph Russo and his AP Top 25 college football podcast. Share, review, tell a friend about both of them. Till next week, I'm Rob Motti reminding you, make a difference. Be a blessing.